Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well. Christmas week has arrived. Another 11 days before we could ceremoniously say goodbye to 2020. And we have quite a few shows between now and the end of the year. So let's start us off with this one here. As this is the J Reels Podcast to listen to everything and what's going on in the world of sports. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 169 episodes, I welcome you guys back. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you stream your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Castbox FM, Player FM, even Amazon Music. If you haven't done so, or you can even check the website at www.jreels.com for more information on me, the pod, etc. It's a Monday, I believe, the official first day of winter. December the 21st in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast. This is as follows. The NBA season tips off tomorrow with two games. We'll get into everything that's happening in the association. My NBA preview. I'll even give you my finals prediction. A little bit of a surprising one. We'll talk about that later on in the podcast. The college football playoff is set to no surprise. I know a lot of people thought maybe Texas A&M could sneak in through the back door. But that's not the case. We'll break down everything that's happening over the course of the weekend with college football and get you set up for the January 1st college football playoff. Not much of a preview because we have another show next week, but we'll touch on that later on. Also, some college basketball where Michigan State loses to Northwestern. At least they were able to win over the weekend since the football team didn't do so. But this year is going to be just as weird as last year because we never really had a full feel or grasp as who is going to be the dominating team in college basketball to win a title? Well, this year is going to be that and then some. So I'll share my thoughts on that. Also, Major League Baseball, the crickets are certainly chirping everywhere as the hot stove is not even cooking, let alone has no gas in the tank for any type of rumors, trades, signings, whatever it may be. I'll discuss that as well as a 56-game NHL season, which will start on January the 13th. I'll dive into that later on, as well as my Hero and Zero of the Week. Before I begin, just a quick apology. If you hear any noise, drilling, construction in the background, because where I'm sitting right now as I record this, there is a lot going on outside. So if you're wondering what the hell is going on as far as is the building starting to crumble, is there some renovations going on in the next room in the apartment of J Reels? No, that is not the case. For whatever it is, they're doing maintenance and have been doing so since the summer. So if you do hear some kind of buzzing or noise in the background, please, it's not my doing. I wish I can go outside and tell these people to stop for about an hour or so, but that's not going to be the case. So just in case if you do hear that pulsating throughout the course of this podcast, my apologies ahead of time. So let's get our sights set on the NFL as we're now down to the final two weeks of the season after tonight where the Steelers will play in Cincinnati 
I'll do a little bit of a preview there. Not much really to preview when you look at a Bengal team that's been wounded for the last few weeks, especially without the rookie quarterback, but the Steelers themselves have not played well. And with the Buffalo Bills breathing down their neck, as far as the two seed in the AFC goes, I'll dive in on what the Steelers will do tonight, or at least predict what they'll do as we close out a week 15. As I talked about last week, the week 15 docket was very unattractive when you looked at all the games. But the irony of it all, that every game, all 16, including tonight's game, actually has playoff implications. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every team that played throughout the course of this week is involved in the playoff hunt. But at least one team had a chance to either move up in the seedings, move out, get closer to a playoff push. So let's get right to it. Here are my winners and losers for an NFL Week 15. My first winner of the week are the Dallas Cowboys. And people are going to say, Jay Reels, what are you kidding? The Cowboys? How could they be a number one winner or even a winner at any stretch this week or even throughout the course of the season? Well, guess what? They put themselves back in the mix for the NFC least, as I've been calling it for the last few weeks. And to think, their record is 5-9. and nine, And they're still alive for the division in that wild and wacky NFC East. The Cowboys, who came off of a win last week in Cincinnati... And then yesterday, beating the 49ers at home, putting up 41 points, including the capper where CeeDee Lamb took the onside kick and ran it to the house and sealed their victory. And before you can even wrap your head around it, they are still alive in this divisional race where the Washington football team lost yesterday to Seattle at home and also the Giants losing a Sunday night game to the Cleveland Browns, which puts the Cowboys back in the fold, just a game behind both teams. And even though they did get swept by Washington, and even though it's going to be insurmountable because they still need a lot of help, and the help in particular in this case will be the Washington football team losing their next two games. Could it happen? They have Carolina at home come this Sunday before they go to Philadelphia to close out their year. So with this 2020 overall and with this division, the way it's played out, Would you be surprised that going into week 17 with the Cowboys coming north here to MetLife to play the Giants would be for a division? Now, the Cowboys, remember, they beat the Giants earlier this year. So when they come to MetLife to play the Giants, and if Washington does lose this coming week to Carolina, they will have not destiny in their own hands, but they can control their own destiny as far as the Giants go because they will kick them out with a win there and then hope that the Philadelphia Eagles will do the Cowboys a favor, could you imagine that, in beating the Washingtonians, and then if the Cowboys do end up beating the Giants, they will be your NFC East champions. Crazy as you could dissect it, but that's where we stand here right now, Monday morning, with this race. And my second winner of the week are the New York Jets. Can you believe it? Who would have thought after starting the year 0-13, They go out to L.A. to play the Rams, a Ram team that came off of a 10-day respite. They had the Thursday night game against the New England Patriots in which they buried them 24-3 in their building. And I don't know what happened between then and now, and I'll get to the Rams in a little bit. The Jets were able to not only win a game, but played well to the point that they had to hang on for dear life at the end. They did lead 20-3. They ended up winning 23-20. Congrats. 
they won't go 0-16 like the 2008 Lions and the Browns of a couple years back. So the Jet fan could certainly rejoice and say, we finally got a win under our belt. But now let me segue that to the losers because my loser number one, I have to put the Rams there only because they had a, not a division stranglehold with the Seahawks, of course, breathing down their necks and with the Seahawks winning in Washington yesterday. Now the Seahawks have the lead in the NFC West. But for the Rams, as I mentioned before, to have this layoff, to come off of that win against New England, and for them to not even show up for the first three quarters, it makes you wonder whether or not this team is going to be capable of making a run to go to a Super Bowl. Do they have the talent? They certainly do offensively. The quarterback could be spotty, but he could play in big games as he did in the NFC Championship a couple of years back against these Saints. And we know the defense is all world, especially when you have Aaron Donald patrolling that defensive line. And Jalen Ramsey is in your secondary. But I don't know what's going on with this team in between its ears because for them not to even show up for the first three quarters, embarrassing as it was to them to lose to the Jets, but if it was tooth and nail, they were hanging around, all right, the Jets got a turnover, they had to make a big play, they certainly did so, they won the game, they're still an NFL team at the end of the day. But for them to just not even wake up, to be in this slumber, to think that they could just show up Walk on the field and, all right, the game is over. Just give us the victory. And why, for a team that wears their blue at home, why do they wear white? And I know that's petty. and I know that's nitpicking and Jay Reels, please. What do what the uniforms make a difference? But think about it. That's like the Steelers wearing white in their home stadium. You're never going to see that. So for the Rams to try to be cute to wear the white uniforms, who knows? But anyway, just a terrible job of preparation. And right, I'm not in the locker room with Sean McVay, but from one week to the next... He could be the boy wonder. He could be that genius. And then you ask yourself, well, well, then what the hell happened yesterday? So they're my loser number one. And then I have to even throw this in the mix. And this is the first timer for the J Reels podcast. My second loser of the week are the New York Jets. How can the Jets, and I guess only the Jets, could be not just in the NFL, but maybe throughout all of sports, be the only franchise to win and lose on the same day? And the reason why I say they're a loser, because with their victory yesterday, and with Jacksonville getting destroyed in Baltimore, they're both at 1-13, and and with Trevor Lawrence and the sweepstakes just two weeks away, we know the draft isn't going to be until April, and we still have to wait and see what Trevor Lawrence is going to do. But the bottom line is, with the way it developed yesterday, the Jets right now would pick second in the NFL draft because the Jacksonville Jaguars... Their schedule is actually weaker than the Jets. So because they have the better strength of schedule, the Jaguars, right now if the season ended, will be able to have the number one selection in the NFL draft. And when you look ahead to these next two weeks, the Jets, their final two games, they host the Cleveland Browns, and then they go to New England. So who knows? Cleveland's playing well here. You would think that they'll go ahead and lose that. But in Foxborough, who knows? The Patriots are playing just as bad, and we know that Belichick and company, they want to go out with a bang, and they hate the Jets in the worst way. So they could lose those two games, but with the Jaguars, they host Chicago in their building before closing out their season in Indianapolis. And funny how it may be that they bookend their season starting against Indianapolis and ending against Indianapolis, and wouldn't that be something to actually bookend their season of 14 straight losses with wins against Indianapolis to start the season I know well because I got knocked out 
by them choosing Indianapolis to start off the year and then to win that final game in the Lucas Oil Stadium. Chances are it's probably not going to happen because Indianapolis is going to need the game not only just for a playoff position but also maybe for a division. Depends on what Tennessee does. But here it is. The Jets go 0-13 and they look like they're going to be the front runners to have Trevor Lawrence fall into their lap and right now they are going to be the number two team overall to select in the upcoming NFL draft as it stands right this second. So as we go through the week here, as I said, all these games have playoff implications going back to even Thursday with Las Vegas and you could pretty much kiss their season goodbye because for them to lose that game against the Los Angeles Chargers and I know a lot of the talk is going to be when the Raiders had the ball in overtime, they marched down the field Marcus Mariota, who came in to substitute for Derek Carr, who left the game with a groin injury, who actually played pretty well. But a lot of the thought there was to go for the touchdown, to end the game, pin the Chargers back there at the one-yard line. I know a tie doesn't look pretty, especially when you're going and fighting for the playoffs there in the AFC on the outside looking in. But they kick the field goal. And then what do the Chargers do? They come right down the field. Punching in the end zone, 30-27. to And with that, go the hopes of the Las Vegas Chargers in their first season in Nevada, as with their playoff hopes, right through the roof of Allegiant Stadium. And then you had the two games on Saturday where Buffalo, no letdown from the week before against the Pittsburgh Steelers. They go to Denver and take care of business against the Denver Broncos. And same for the Green Bay Packers as they beat Carolina. Now, Aaron Rodgers did not like the way the second half unfolded. They had a 21-3 lead at the half. They had three three three-and-outs. They weren't able to move the ball until they had one series where they were able to kick that field goal and ended up winning 24-16. But was the game really in doubt? I know their offense stalled in the second half. I know they didn't really produce. They let Carolina come back into the game. But the Packers prevail. And your Saturday schedule... Now will also be into effect going into next weekend, which we'll touch on week 16 later. So then as we move forward to yesterday's games, the game of the day was Kansas City and New Orleans. As we all know, that was the big matchup with the two powerhouses in each conference. Now the Saints were finally getting Drew Brees back. Brees said in the postgame, if he was 100% ready to play, he admitted that that wasn't the case. With 11 fractured ribs and a punctured lung, I mean, how could you... Not think he was going to be 100%. 11 fractured ribs? Jeez. Now, Breeze got off to a very slow start in this game. 0 for 6. First time in his career that he started off without completing a pass in his first six attempts. So the Chiefs were able to score early and often. They jumped out there to a 14-0 lead. Then the Saints were able to tack on a touchdown later in the first half. But the key play was at 14-7 as the ball was being punted right before the end of the first half, Demarcus Robinson fumbles the ball where it goes into the end zone. It was deep in their own territory at the time. Goes into the end zone. Alex Anzalone jumps on the ball and looks like it's going to be a touchdown. Tie the game, go into the half where the Saints get the ball in the second half. But no, it squanders out from underneath, goes through the back of the end zone, ends up being a safety. And when you think about it, those were the biggest points of the game. At the time, you didn't know, but if there was a touchdown there at 14 up, a whole different ballgame. Now, mind you, 14-9, Saints come out of the tunnel, second half. They were able on their opening drive to get into the end zone to make it 15-14. And I know 
stupid analytics, you're going to go for two, so on and so forth. I thought it was a terrible move by Peyton, and that's a first guess. Because they have the lead at that point, kick the extra point. I get it that you want to be up by three instead of two, but it's two minutes into the second half. If you go up by two, there's still a whole second half to be played, and we know with that potent chief offense, anything goes, anything could happen. So just kick the extra point. It's a stabilizer from a psychological standpoint. But as it was, the Chiefs were able to then put it into overdrive. Mahomes makes plays all over the field. Now the Saint defense, give them credit, they harassed Patrick Mahomes all day. We all know when it comes to any of these quarterbacks, even a guy like Lamar Jackson with the speed and the elusiveness that he has. But Mahomes, we all know, his game is in the pocket, but he can scramble, he can run. But he had his head on a swivel all day. He was under massive duress. Give credit to the Saints. I don't know if that's also a thing where maybe you could even look at the chief offensive line as a possible worry as you get into January where the Chiefs will try to defend their championship from last year. But even with that, they still had enough points to put up on the board and pretty much took control of the second half. I know that the end of the game, the Saints made it close to make it 32-29, but the Chiefs go ahead and win by that final score, 13-1 and atop the AFC, and chances are they're going to be the one seed and have that bye to kick off the month of January. Their final two games are at home. They play Atlanta and then the Chargers, and they can put their feet up for two weeks before they defend their title. The one thing about the Chiefs, though, that would worry you, they've played a lot of these games, and rightfully so. They're a video game when you watch them. We know the threats that they have there. Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey. Forget about even the running backs. I mean, when you look at even Le'Veon Bell, he's done nothing since he's been in Kansas City. Now, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, you got to worry about. He has a high ankle sprain. He left the game. He's also a guy that is just another weapon in their arsenal. But we all know with the Chiefs, it's going to be about their passing game. And as long as they have the tight end, who is the safety blanket for Patrick Mahomes, and we know the deep threat in Tyreek Hill, where you can look at the other guys like Miko Hardman or even Sammy Watkins, who gets lost in this offensive juggernaut. But the one thing, when you look at and see what happened yesterday, you wonder about the offensive line to be able to protect Mahomes. And we know Mahomes could escape, he could run, he could scramble. Understood. But you wonder whether or not if you get a team that's able to keep him in the pocket and put that pressure there, what that's going to be come January, especially with a team, let's say, like Tennessee. And the only reason why I bring them up because they're not great defensively by any stretch, but they can control the ball with the clock. And the same for Baltimore. And even though Baltimore has never beaten Kansas City in a big spot, but you never know on that particular afternoon if they're going to rush for over... 200 some odd yards and have the time of possession in their favor that could be a detriment to the Kansas City Chiefs but that's the only way you could see them losing come next month because this team is on its way to the Super Bowl now we've seen a lot of things happen over the years remember Green Bay was 15-1 and and they were an offensive juggernaut in 2011 and what happened the Giants went into their building and upset them and we get that if the Chiefs have that flick of the switch mentality And if for whatever the reason, a half, they're asleep at the wheel and then they're playing catch-up and time runs out, it could happen to them. And as we saw last year, that could have been the case if you were the Houston Texans up 24-0 and you figured that was even too much of a cushion and almost 
unbelievable to watch considering that Kansas City couldn't get their mojo to start. But once they got their first touchdown and then Houston, for whatever reason, went for the fake punt, that's when it started the snowball and then they just took off. So just something to think about as we get into January that the Chiefs, although they look unstoppable and unbeatable, but we've seen this with teams in the past. Even the Colts that one year when they started off 14-0 and then they fizzled in the postseason. Not going to say it's going to happen this time around. And even though they're going to be the odds-on favorite to go back and win, and I would think right now, why would you bet against them? But the NFL can be tricky. And the NFL's, for whatever the reason, the gods have something up their sleeves. And would I be surprised, especially in the divisional round? When you get to a championship game and in a Super Bowl, of course, anything could happen. But the divisional round, if any team's going to get picked off there, would be that one seed. It just depends on who's going to play him at that time. Something to think about as we move along, despite the fact that they are on a roll, unlike we've seen in quite some time. And then lastly, before I move on to the other games, I believe the Chiefs lost, what, in week five? I believe they were 4-0 before they lost to the Raiders. So now they're going to run the table from week six all the way to the Super Bowl. It would almost help them to lose another game. Not that they're going to, because when you look on their schedule and then both of those games are at home. It would almost help them to lose another game only for them to maybe get themselves refocused, for lack of a better word, because the team is as focused and as ready to go and as potent as they've been pretty much since the beginning of this run with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. But at the same time, I think it will do them some good to kind of bring them back to earth and then for them to say, all right, we got it out of our system. We're going to have to buy. We're going to have the week off. Now let's get to business and let's get to Tampa to defend our championship. Tampa Bay had a big scare there yesterday. We were down 17-0 to the Atlanta Falcons. No surprise there when you have Tom Brady and comebacks against the Falcon franchise. So Arthur Blank and company had to shake their heads and try to shake off the stench of Super Bowl 52 or whatever that was, 51, which they will forever hold that in their hearts and memories. But they came storming back there in the second half. They went 31-27. Tom Brady throws for 390 yards. His first connection with Antonio Brown. And the Falcons, as we all know, just out to lunch and out to sea for this year. And they certainly need to regroup in the worst way and have not rebounded since that Super Bowl loss going a few years back. So Tom Brady puts the final nail in the Falcons coffin for this year. Tennessee keeps rolling. Ryan Tannehill, 273 yards. Derrick Henry, 147. Detroit was no match for them. I'm just going to zoom through these games, people, because not much to talk as far as drama, as far as any type of strategy is concerned. Miami beats New England, so they officially knock out the Patriots out of the AFC playoff picture. Miami, who had to keep winning because they had the Ravens breathing down their neck. We'll go through all the AFC and NFC playoff pictures later on, but they currently hold the seventh seed with a better conference record over the Ravens yesterday. And the Ravens just stormed right through Jacksonville, no surprise there, 40-14, to as they continue to keep their wheels turning toward a playoff berth. Last week, I know we weren't on the air, was that morning producing and of course, hosting this podcast, but the game of the year was that Monday night game between Baltimore and Cleveland, and what could you say? Not to really delve into that, because Cleveland did play well, they did show some resiliency, but the Ravens needed that game. I'm not going to say in the worst way, but it certainly helped as far as propel them to get through this final stretch where they are playing Jacksonville. Next week, they host the Giants, and then the following week, they go to Cincinnati to close out the year, so they should 
finish their season at 11-5 and and see where the chips fall at that time. If the Dolphins are going to lose two games over these final two weeks or even one of the next two so the Ravens could get that final spot. So they were able to move on and win against the Jaguars. We talked about the Washingtonians. They lose at home to Seattle. No Alex Smith. So you had Dwayne Haskins come in to perform. And Seattle was pretty much in control of this game. I know Washington made a late push, but they ended up losing 20-15. to So that's why with Dallas being my number one winner and back in the NFC East playoff or division picture. Now the Washingtonians were going to lose a game at some point. They won in Pittsburgh. They won in Arizona against San Francisco. This was a game that was going to be tough, even though Seattle had to come cross-country to play this game. And the Seahawks, where they've been up and down here over the last few weeks, were able to get this victory. And as I talked about earlier with the Rams losing, Seattle now has the top spot in the NFC West with a 10-4 record, which sets up their matchup next week in Seattle for the division. Because if LA does win, they'll tie with records, but they'll sweep them as far as the regular season series is concerned. But if the Seahawks win, then they'll win the division where the Rams will make the postseason, but they'll have no shot at hosting a home game in the NFC. Speaking of playoff hopes, the Bears, who were pretty much left for dead, starting off 5-1, they lost six in a row, and now they've won their last two to the point that although they're behind the Arizona Cardinals who beat Philadelphia yesterday, and I'll get to them in a minute, but for the... Bears to still be alive after everything that's happened and then pretty much knock the Vikings out with a 33-27 victory in Minnesota. And sorry, my guys, Kev the Viking fan and Headstyle is just another long year for those two guys, especially after last year winning that game in New Orleans but then losing in San Francisco in the divisional round. So we won't see them come January. But the Bears trying to hold out hope to have Jacksonville, but they do host Green Bay, their final game of the year, and Green Bay is going to need the game. So they still have a long road to go, even with a cupcake game next week. And that's a potential trap game when you think about it, because they may be thinking, oh, we'll beat Jacksonville. They've lost 13 straight. And then watch the Bears take the Jaguars for granted, end up losing, and then flushing their playoff hopes down the drain in the process. So we'll uh, keep our eyes on that. And then as far as Philadelphia and Arizona, big game by Kyler Murray, his best game as a pro, throwing for 406 yards, combined that with four touchdowns, three in the air, one running. And Philadelphia, where now we have a quarterback controversy because Jalen Hurts, who has been the starter the last couple weeks, was okay last week in their shocking win against New Orleans and was very good this week against the Arizona Cardinals, threw for 330 yards, was part of the offense in the mix throughout the whole afternoon to where Carson Wentz, even said that he doesn't want to be a backup and who knows, may even look for his exit as far as the trade goes. But that's going to be insurmountable considering that they owe him a ton of money, I believe $25 million next year, but with the $10 million signing bonus on top of that, it'll be $35 million, possibly in dead money. So they're going to have to keep him unless they're able to make a trade with another team. I'm not going to say that the Carson Wentz era is over in Philadelphia, But it's certainly in question. And that's not to say after two games that Jalen Hurts is the answer to all their woes at quarterback because I believe Carson Wentz can still play in this league and could still play on that team. But he needs a better offensive line and more weapons. Because if Jalen Hurts, for whatever the reason, has been playing well here, and I get that a lot of teams don't have tape on Hurts, so it's easy for him to go ahead and play 
with abandon. No pressure on him. He's just going out there, slinging it, running all over the field as if everything is peachy keen in his world. But you got to wonder if there was any type of pressure on him or let's say they were a game ahead or even behind in the division, would he be starting right now? Chances are probably not. And that's not to knock Hurts. That's not to denigrate anything he's done here in his first two starts as a pro. But to me, it's still unanswered on whether or not Carson Wentz is going to be gone Philadelphia after this year. Because again, they're going to have to take a huge cap hit going next year if they do happen to release him. Now, if they trade him, that's one thing. But again, who's going to take on that type of salary? Even a team that maybe is looking to build their future or build their franchise moving forward and to take that cap hit or take that responsibility right off the bat, that remains to be seen. So I understand we saw that a few years back with Nick Foles being traded to Jacksonville when he had the big deal there that he signed the $88 million in Jacksonville and he was traded to Chicago. But for that to happen again, we'll still have to wait and see on that. But I don't think the Carson Wentz era is over in Philadelphia, even with the success early on here with Jalen Hurts. If you're a Texan fan, I know you got to be pulling your hair out of your head or if you have any hair left on your head because for the second time in three weeks, you lost on a final drive going into the end zone on a fumble against the Indianapolis Colts. If you remember two weeks ago in Houston at 26-20, they were about to go in for the go-ahead touchdown or at least to tie the game and then kick the extra point, but they fumbled at the five-yard line to Sean Watson. Indianapolis recovers. They fly out of Houston with a huge victory for them, 26-20. And then yesterday, in Indianapolis, up 27-20, almost the same score. Fourth and five, they complete the pass. I believe it was to Kiki Kuti. He's about to go into the end zone. You can see he's getting stopped, but in the process, gets stripped. The ball's in the end zone, recovered by Indianapolis. And if that isn't the Houston Texans season in two nutshells, you can just look at both of those plays against the same team with almost the same score as being the highlight reel for the Houston Texans in 2020. Indianapolis survives. They're able to keep themselves in line with the Tennessee Titans, although the Titans do have the tiebreaker advantage over Indianapolis, but they both have the same record. So that fight is going to go down to the finish for the AFC South, and they both have very interesting games this upcoming week. And then to wrap up, the Browns beat the Giants 20-6. to Now the Giants were inept offensively. All you got to do is just know, with Freddie Kitchens being the offensive coordinator for the game because Jason Garrett was on the COVID reserve list. So Kitchens, I guess he was trying to come up with something to show up his old team. Twice they had the ball, I believe it was, I didn't watch the game, but from what I read, twice they had the ball in the red zone. And they turned the ball over on downs. The first time that's happened in, I believe, 14 years. And they attempted these plays with the least amount of imagination possible. So the Giants, who had an opportunity to get even with the Washingtonians, but at the same time with the tiebreaker advantage to have their destiny in control. But that isn't going to be the case due to their loss to the Browns. And give it up to Baker Mayfield. He's played very well down the stretch. Well last night, 27 for 33. What did he throw? 297 yards, a couple of touchdowns. Now their offense wasn't great. It wasn't spectacular, but they did the job. And the Giants, I mean, what could you say? Although they've had this stretch here where they put themselves back into at least a discussion for the division title, but you kind of wonder if they're starting to run out of gas here, and then they go to Baltimore next week, where now Baltimore's flying on all cylinders. 
So the Giants let go of another opportunity for them to get even with the Washingtonians. And who knows, that could be their season, even with two weeks to play. But as I said before, they do have the advantage with the tiebreaker. But the one thing that they can't afford is to end up with the same record as the Cowboys. Because that will be trouble. And I'll get to all three teams, Washington, New York, Dallas, in a scenario where if they all end up tied, how that will unfold. But at this moment, the Washington football team has the advantage there in the NFC, even with their loss yesterday and with Dallas creeping up and the Giants pretty much with the status quo. And then quickly with tonight's game, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, you would think finally, after a full week off, actually eight days, considering they played last Sunday night, and with the previous few weeks, how that unfolded, not having the Thursday night Thanksgiving game against the Ravens, in which they had to wait six more days to play it on a Wednesday afternoon, and then five days later have to play a Monday late afternoon game against the Redskins, in which they got their first loss of the year, then six days later to have a Sunday night game in which they were dominated in the second half by the Buffalo Bills. Now, hopefully the Steelers can take a collective breath and get back to playing some crisp football And they're playing a Bengals team that we know has been wounded, has not played well over this stretch, especially with the rookie quarterback being on the shelf. So not that I'm expecting the Steelers to dominate from start to finish, because as we know, this team has not started out of the gate quickly in any of its games, except for, I believe, the Brown game. And for them to just at least have a game where it could be a rocking chair game, 21-3 at the half and just win 31-10. Could we have that type of game? Because right now, They need to win this game because if they lose tonight, they'll end up falling to the three seed in the AFC because Buffalo, with their win on Saturday night, they're 11-3 and they have a tiebreaker if they happen to be head-to-head matchup with the same record against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I would think the Steelers will have an easy game. Hopefully they can have a semblance of a running game tonight that it's not all on the arm of Ben Roethlisberger. And with the backup there, Ryan Finley in Cincinnati, you would think he's going to have a long night. We all know the Steelers defense has been hurting. A lot of guys have been on IR for the rest of the year. As we know about Devin Bush, obviously Bud Dupree, Robert Spillane hasn't played, Joe Hayden maybe back from concussion protocol. So we'll see. But you would think the Steelers should go on and cruise to a rocking chair type game tonight in preparation for week 16 against Indianapolis next week. And let's get to week 16 as we look through the schedule. You have the Christmas Day game, 4.30, Fox NFL Network, where the Vikings will go to New Orleans to play the Saints. Certainly not a rematch of the wild card round game from last year. And there will be no Minneapolis miracle in the Big Easy because, as I said before, the Vikings are done. Now, they're still mathematically alive, but we all know they are going to be done as far as making it to the postseason. And with a loss in this game, they'll uh, be put out the pasture as far as the playoffs go. But the Saints looking to try to get back on track, as we talked about earlier with Drew Brees, not having an efficient game there yesterday, still coming back from the broken ribs and the punctured lung. But you would think they should be able to, I'm not going to say have an easy win because Minnesota, they are formidable in the standpoint of they have a very good offense. We know about the running back. Justin Jefferson has blossomed into a number one threat on that team. And defensively, I know they've been up and down, hit or miss, hot and cold. But you would think the Saints will go on to a victory there on Christmas. So to me, watch the NBA games because I get the football fan and everybody's into the football right now. But is that a game that I will turn on at Christmas? Eh, I'll check it out here and there. But I may be more focused on the NBA as opposed to that game. 
And then Saturday, you have the three games with Tampa at Detroit, San Francisco at Arizona, and then Miami at Vegas. Now, the first two games you can forget about, Tampa, Detroit. Detroit, they're out to sea this year, and Arizona is going to look to try to get themselves ready for a Week 17 against the Rams to get themselves into the postseason. Now, San Francisco did not play well in Dallas yesterday, and it's funny because even though this is a road game for the Niners, but remember, their last two home games were played in that stadium. So, I'm sure that maybe they have a little bit of a... I'm not going to say home cooking, but maybe they have some comforts there being in Arizona. So does that mean that they're going to go ahead and win or is there going to be an upset in the making? Probably not, but you never know. With San Francisco being there and knowing their surroundings a little bit, that may be somewhat of a factor if Arizona comes out of the gate a little slow or is a little lethargic. But you would hope or even think that as a Cardinal fan that they would right out of the gate put their foots on the Niners' necks and just go away and cruise to a victory. So we'll certainly see how that shakes down. But Miami and Vegas is a big game because although Vegas is done and mathematically they're still alive, but Miami needs the game in the worst way. And even more so because this is the first of two road games for the Dolphins where the Ravens, as I said earlier, have a much easier schedule as they'll host the Giants and then go to Cincinnati the following week. So that's a game that's going to be put on notice out of those four games Friday and Saturday. And then your Sunday slate. You have a couple of very good games with Indianapolis and Pittsburgh at 1 o'clock. And then, of course, you also have the Rams in Seattle. That's going to be for the division. Your night game is Tennessee at Green Bay, which is another big game. It also impacts the race there with the Indianapolis-Pittsburgh game. So you have a few games that at least you could look at here. If you want to say Giants at Baltimore because the Giants are still hanging around there in the NFC least, eh, I guess you could say that. Also... Philadelphia and Dallas, just for the sake of Dallas and everything that I expressed earlier in this podcast. Besides that, you got nothing. Atlanta, Kansas City, Cleveland at the Jets, Carolina at Washington, Chicago at Jacksonville, Cincinnati at Houston. That's the one game that doesn't have any playoff implications, so we could definitely skip over that one. Your Monday night game is Buffalo at New England, but with New England out, I know Belichick, they're going to play hard. They're not going to give up. They're not going to just lay down and give the victory to Buffalo and I think it would also help Buffalo to lose a game here too I'm not saying they're going to I'm not saying they should but sometimes even though you want to go into the postseason with some momentum and have a lot of victories under your belt but we all know it's a crapshoot come playoff time so not a big Monday night matchup there but you do have some good games and a lot of those games with the implications that I mentioned as far as playoffs are concerned so you're going to look at Carolina Washington you're going to look at everything that's happening in that division also, Indianapolis-Pittsburgh is a huge game. So you do have some games that you could chew on, that you could wrap your arms around, as I like to say, as we get to close out a Week 16 and get into the final week of the NFL season. All right, now let's go through both conferences. The AFC will start with Kansas City perched atop the conference with the 13-1 record. No way that they're going to relinquish this spot. They will have the bye come January where now you have Pittsburgh and Buffalo look like they could match up there between two and three. Pittsburgh wins tonight. As I mentioned earlier, they'll still keep that number two seed in the AFC where Buffalo has number three, but of course that could change over the next two weeks. If Buffalo does happen to tie with the Steelers, they'll be the two seed. Tennessee and Indianapolis remains to be seen. Tennessee currently has the four seed in the AFC. And even though Indianapolis is at number six because they lost to Cleveland earlier this year, But that could change. Right now, Tennessee has a better AFC conference record than Indianapolis does. But remember, 
Tennessee does have one more game against the NFC, which is the Sunday night game against Green Bay. So we'll have to see how that unfolds. But we have Cleveland at five, Indianapolis at six. Miami is the seventh seed at nine and five. And they are tied with Baltimore, but Baltimore is on the outside looking in because of the Dolphins' AFC conference record is better than the Ravens. Now remember, the Ravens do have a game against the Giants on Sunday. So not that they can afford to lose because you're getting deep into the season. But if they do happen to lose that game, even if the Dolphins lose, it won't affect them as far as tiebreakers go because that's a game that's out of conference. So we'll have to see how that shakes down. I mentioned the Raiders. You can forget about it. They're not going to make the postseason, but they are still in the hunt there and alive mathematically at 7-7. Seven and seven. On to the NFC where Green Bay is all alone at the one seed, 11-3. and three. Followed by the Saints and Seahawks, 2-3. and three. Both teams are 10-4, and four, but the Saints have a better conference record than the Seahawks. That could change over the next couple of weeks, depending on how the chips fall. The fourth seed right now belongs to Washington, but as I said earlier, Dallas and the Giants still hanging around. We'll see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks. You have the Rams that are sitting in number five, but that could change because if they beat Seattle... On Sunday, they will sweep the season series and have the tiebreaker edge and will be in the number three spot as far as the NFC goes. Then you have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at six, followed by the Arizona Cardinals at seven. Behind them are the Bears, as I mentioned, which are a game behind Arizona. But you would think that the top six seeds will pretty much be entrenched. We still have to wait to see how the NFC East unfolds. But with Arizona... Chicago, the final two games for those teams. The Bears, as I mentioned, they go to Jacksonville before wrapping up at home against Green Bay. And then Arizona has the Saturday afternoon game against the Niners at home before going to LA to face the Rams. So it's not etched in stone just yet. That's how it looks right now. Things could change. That's just typical of the NFL and this season. So we'll continue to keep our eye on it as we get into the home stretch of this NFL season. Now, to go from the pro to the college circuit, and what an interesting weekend we saw in college football with some of these games. Now, in the grand scheme of things, is anybody surprised? Is anybody flabbergasted that the final four teams are Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Notre Dame? No. I get if you're Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, the coach, knowing that you won eight straight games, you beat Tennessee there on Saturday, and you feel that you have just as much as any right to be in the final four. Now, remember... I believe in week two, they got blasted by Alabama. So if anybody wants to look at that right off the bat, they could say they don't deserve to be there and they have the one loss. The only argument, if you're Jimbo Fisher and company, is Ohio State being the team that's six wins. They didn't play a full season. Now, mind you, all these teams didn't play full seasons, but you get the drift. If they were to be the team that would go into the college football playoff as one of the hotter teams, And we all know who the hottest team in the country is. And we'll get to that in a second. But that's going to be his stickling point. But he said, at the end of the day, it's all right. That's how it is. That's how the system works. We'll just have to go ahead. And I forgot who their bowl game is because I'll say this right off the bat, people. If it's not the college football playoff, other bowls, I could kill us. Who cares about all these other bowls? I know if you're an alma mater at any of the schools that are going to the Bulls, and they're not knocking those schools, and not knocking what they've done, their accomplishment to get to that bowl game. But at the end of the day, who cares? No one cares. 
Nobody cares. So, right, if you're Florida and whatever bowl that you're playing in, or if you're Georgia and whatever bowl you're playing in, or Cincinnati, Coastal Carolina, etc., yes, it's good for those schools. It's good for those programs to get there. Maybe not so the Floridas and Georgias of the world because they are part of the big, bad, almighty SEC, but for those other schools that had tremendous years and are going to bowls, kudos to them. High five, round of applause, the whole nine. But nobody's going to remember those games after it's being played, or even for the most part, the casual sports fan couldn't tell you where Coastal Carolina plays, even if they like depended on it. So before we look ahead, and not necessarily preview, but just get a little snapshot of what the college football playoffs going to look like come January 1st, I'll start off with the Alabama game. Now, when I watched this, I looked at the first couple of drives, and Alabama right down the field, no surprise touchdown, same for Florida, all right, great. On the Bama next possession, where the interception happened, where trading gets the ball and you kind of thought to yourself, and this was deep in Florida territory, you kind of thought and said, oh, wow. All right. Not only are we going to have a game here early on, we all know it's four quarters and this was late in the first quarter, but maybe Florida could take a lead. And we knew that this was going to be a blow-by-blow type of game. It was just a matter of who's going to make a defensive stand or who's going to make that extra blow to take the lead. Well, the extra blow was on that interception by Trey Dean where he fumbled the ball, actually got blasted, blindsided by John Mitchie there where Devontae Smith, Johnny on the spot, who happened to recover the football and then you just knew at that point that Alabama was going to go right into the end zone. And of course, who got that touchdown to take the 14-7 lead? Devontae Smith. And I'm not going out on a limb by saying this, but when you look at last year's Wide receiver draft, especially Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs. Devontae Smith's probably better than both of those guys. He has had a monster year, and he's had monster games in key spots, and he's a guy that is going to be reckoned with in the NFL. And you also had a guy, remember Jalen Waddell, who was another big threat who suffered a leg injury earlier in the year, is supposed to be just as good as those guys as well, but obviously we're not able to see him because he's been hurt. But man, Devontae Smith, the guy has just been money and he is an electric player. So then, 14-7, and you knew it was going to be back and forth. But then on that next drive by Florida, we thought, all right, let's see how they answer. Are they going to answer with a touchdown? So they drive into Alabama territory. They're outside of the red zone. It was a, what, third and nine. The quarterback of Florida, Kyle Trask, tries to run it up the gut. He gets short. It's about fourth and four. They weren't going to go for it to kick the field goal. And right then and there, early on, I thought to myself, this is where they're going to lose the game. Because with that Alabama offense, there is no way that you could win by kicking field goals. You got to go for touchdowns. And I know it was early enough in the game. It was fourth and four. They had to kick a field goal there. They had to get points. You get that. But then you saw what happened afterwards. Alabama then takes a lead by 11. And then even though Florida answers back, but then Alabama takes another lead. Up there, 28-17. It just kept going on and on and on and on. And when you have that type of game, and even though I'm going to get to a couple other points, but when you have that type of game where the team that's a favorite and is the number one team, in this case, Alabama, whenever they have that sizable lead, despite Florida and despite the other team, the underdog, whatever it is that they do, it never seems like it's going to be enough. It just doesn't. And even like I said, when they get the touchdown there late in the first half with about a minute to go at 28-17, you think, all right, well, maybe somehow, some way, if Florida could stop them and they get the ball to start the second half, 
all right, they're still down by 11, but maybe they can make it 28-24, make it a little interesting if they can get a stop, etc. What happens? Not the case. A minute and change to go. Bama right down the field. Najee Harris, another remarkable player, had five touchdowns in the game. Gets the touchdown reception there to make it 35-17. And good night, the lights. I know that Florida made it interesting. They made it close. I get it that the final score was 52-46. And they had their moments. We understand. But again, when you have a team that always has a step ahead of the other team, and in this case, they always had the 18 or the 11-point lead, and they were in no danger of losing this game. So I don't care what you say. I don't care what Florida. Uh, no, no, no. To me, Alabama, for the most part, was in control of this game. And when I say for the most part, even in the second half where Florida looked like they were making their move, they still weren't going to relinquish that lead and by any means beat themselves to where Florida could capitalize and either take the lead or go ahead and win the game. So that's what you have there with Alabama. Let's get to the other two games before I get the big picture. Now, people thought this was going to be a carbon copy between Notre Dame and Clemson from the first game in South Bend, even without Trevor Lawrence, where they had the freshman quarterback there playing, and he played very well in that game. And although Notre Dame came out, played well, they got the field goal, they also had the interception there of Trevor Lawrence in Notre Dame territory, and they also had a first and goal there, which they were unable to capitalize on. They had to settle for a 24-yard field goal. This is after it was 3 nothing. So think about this. Notre Dame, 3-0, down the field with Ian Book and company. Then Trevor Lawrence gets picked off on their opening possession. The Irish go down the field. They get a first and goal. They weren't able to punch it in. So now, after the kid kicked a 51-yard field goal, then they go for a 24-yard field goal after their three downs in the goal-and-goal situation, and he pushes it wide right. To me, that was the beginning of the end of the Irish. Now, who would have thought that it would have ended up the way it did at 34-10? to 10? But when you watch that, you just get a sense that, oh, by min- them missing that field goal, and even on top of that, them missing a golden opportunity to get a 10-0 lead, to have the momentum, to maybe get Clemson, to have some pressure, not only on that sideline, but even on the field. That wasn't to be. Ensuing drive, Trevor Lawrence to Amari Rogers, 67 yards down the right sideline. And although... Notre Dame, in their next possession, they drive down the field to the Clemson 28. They went for it on a 4th and 3, and they had to go for it. I thought that was a smart move by Brian Kelly for them to just go ahead and try to get those 3 yards to get a first down. Because as I said before, when you play a team like Clemson or like Alabama, field goals aren't going to cut it. So they went for it, and they had the play converted. Ian Book rolls out, the tight end was open, the throw may have been a little bit high, but that ball should have been caught. It gets dropped, and that's your ballgame. After that, it was Travis Etienne. It was too much Trevor Lawrence. They had some of their defensive starters that didn't play in the first game in South Bend. They were back in this game, and they pretty much put a clamp on that Notre Dame offense and a resounding 34-10 victory by the Tigers to just stake their claim to say, not only are we back, but we're ready to go back to a title game and win it all. And then the final game, Ohio State and Northwestern, they really put a scare into the Buckeyes and give them credit. They played a very good game, very good defensively. Now, I understand that Justin Fields did not have a great game when you look at his final stats. What was he, 12 for 27, 114 yards, two interceptions, and one of those were pretty bad. 
when you look back on it. Northwestern, who had a 10-6 lead at the half, and in the opening possession, they marched down the field, get to the nine-yard line, I believe it was a third and goal, and then that was a huge play because right after that, the quarterback of Northwestern, Peyton Ramsey, throws an interception there to the left corner of the end zone where Justin Hilliard picks it off. And then you wondered if that was going to be it, if that was going to be their chance to win the game, to probably go up by 11, to put themselves in good position, like I said, even with Clemson, to get some nervousness, some anxiety, some pressure on that Ohio State sideline. And even though after that interception, they Buckeyes went down the field and Justin Fields threw an interception on that possession there. So it made you think that, okay, well, they traded turnovers there. Now can Northwestern capitalize and maybe go back down the field, take some time off the clock, et cetera, and maybe some way, somehow, get themselves into the end zone or at least extend that lead a little bit to a full touchdown. But the running game was the remedy for the Ohio State Ills as Trey Sermon, who had two rushing touchdowns in that second half and rushed for 331 yards overall. School record eclipsed Eddie George of years past. And as I said, Justin Fields not good in the game. He threw that pick right before the half where the kid, the cornerback there, made the one-handed interception and that would have actually taken the lead at that point for Ohio State. And I get you have to have Ohio State go. You need to have a Big Ten team to represent in this college football playoff. But if what you saw there against Northwestern is any indication, Ohio State is going to have a long evening against Clemson. And that's actually going to be a rematch, if you remember, from last year's semifinal game where Clemson and Ohio State played to where Clemson won 29-23. And then you also have a rematch of sorts with Alabama and Notre Dame, be it eight years ago in the national title game where Eddie Lacy and company just ran all over that Monte Tayo Notre Dame-led defense. Certainly going to be a far cry from that game, but now as we look overall... I'll start off with Alabama and Notre Dame. And let's face it, the first storyline going into this playoff, who's going to beat Alabama? Alabama to me is like LSU last year because LSU had that lethal offense led by Joe Burrow, Justin Jefferson, all the weapons that they had there on offense. And although Alabama, they've had their moments on defense, but this is not a classic Alabama defensive team. This is all offense. When you have, as I mentioned, Devontae Smith, Najee Harris, the quarterback, Mac Jones, who may be your Heisman Trophy winner this year just based on what he's done, especially recently. But their offense is unstoppable. And I don't know if there's going to be any defense here that's left of these Final Four. Is Notre Dame going to be able to stop that offense? We saw what they did against Clemson. And Alabama's offense is better than Clemson. So what does that mean? Is Alabama going to run up 70 on the Fighting Irish? So that's number one. So I don't think anybody's beating Alabama. I hope somebody does. I can't stand seeing Nick Saban's face and he's won enough championships for 50 lifetimes. So I hope that they do not win. But please, not going out on a limb by saying that Alabama is going to win this whole thing. And I can't see anybody beating them. So that's number one. Also, the game is being moved from the Rose Bowl in Pasadena to AT&T Stadium in Arlington due to the rising COVID cases out in California. And I know Brian Kelly early in the week made a comment about how the team wasn't going to make the trip. They were going to skip making the trip to California to play in the Rose Bowl, which is nonsense because, please, at the end of the day, there's no way that the alumni, the institution that is Notre Dame, were not going to allow their coach and players. They're going to say, wait a minute, this is for a national title or at least to get to a national title. 
there's no way we're skipping this game. So if Brian Kelly had to stay home, so be it. So now with the game being played in Texas, don't have to go across the country. They could just hop on a plane and head south. And again, I'll do more of the preview of this game next week since it's not going to be played until a week from this Friday. And then Clemson, Ohio State, again, another rematch. Clemson now, you would think they're clicking on all cylinders. And as I said a minute ago, if it's any indication with the way Ohio State played, they better just throw that tape out and get themselves regrouped and just thank their lucky stars that they were able to come out of that game with a victory. Because if that was against, and not to knock Northwestern, they've had a very good year. But if they played like that against any of these powerhouses, they would have been blown out of the building. So we'll talk about that more so next week. Lastly, and my apologies, Ray Perkins, speaking of Alabama, he had passed away a couple weeks ago, and I didn't mention that on the podcast. Passed away at the age of 79. We all know that he was the Alabama coach post Bear Bryant, part of the Alabama fabric for all those years. Remember, he was also coach of the football giants there in the late 70s, early 80s, so he passed away at the age of 79. My apologies for not mentioning it last week, so thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Perkins family. We'll talk more on the... College football playoff there next Monday and see how a wall breakdown, shakedown, little preview of that. You'll get a dose of that a week from today. All right, now to turn our attention to the NBA. As the season tips off for real tomorrow, two games. Your games are Golden State at Brooklyn to play the Nets. So you're going to have Kevin Durant go up against his former mates for the first time since his signing in Brooklyn. And we all know. 18 months since that Achilles injury that he suffered in Game 5 against the Toronto Raptors in the NBA Finals. So we're going to get to see him in full display. And then your follow-up game, the championship banner will be raised to the Raptors of the Staples Center. And I should know this off the top of my head, but here we go. Jay Reels, not really too much in NBA mode because obviously it is all about the NFL right now. But the Lakers will kick off their season and put their banner to the Raptors against the Los Angeles Clippers. For some reason, I thought it was against the Mavericks, but I believe they play the Mavericks on Christmas Day. So that's where I have my dates mixed up. But now with the season upon us, 72 games. We'll see how this goes without a bubble, as we all know. It's going to be a crapshoot. We're now into winter. We know what's happening with the COVID cases. We know that these players are going to have their own protective bubbles to make sure that they can make it through the season without any hiccups, any mishaps. We've seen it time and time again with the other sports, baseball to a certain extent, NFL, we've seen games move around, although it's been quiet the last couple of weeks. And again, NFL holding their collective breaths to make it through at least the end of this regular season. So now the NBA is going to be ready to start the parade as far as getting through the season unscathed or as unscathed as they possibly can be. And when we look at the schedule and we look at the season, here's some of the storylines that I'm looking at that are going to be spotlighted throughout the course of this season. And the first one is the Lakers primed to repeat. I don't see what team is going to stop them to at least get to the NBA Finals out West. All right, you do have the Clippers. Let's see what Tyron Lue could do as far as them getting over the hump with the disappointment of last year and being disposed up three games to one against the Denver Nuggets. Now they have a lot of hell to pay and a lot to answer to this coming year because as we all know right now, with Paul George signed four more years on top of the one year he has this year, 
Kawhi has an opt-out after this year. So if things go awry quickly, especially in the postseason, despite the fact he's from the Southern California region, you never know with these players and we never know what's inside the mind and the heart of a one Kawhi Leonard. But would you be surprised if he jumps ship if the Clippers, for whatever reason, can't make it to the conference finals for the first time in their franchise's history? So I digress. That's another storyline, which I'll get to in a minute. But the Lakers, how could they not make it to the finals this year? It would be an unbelievable upset if they don't make it to the finals. I mean that. We know the signing of Anthony Davis was huge. LeBron re-ups for two more years. They trade for Dennis Schrader, Montrez Harrell, Marcus Hall for a little insurance there for a big guy that could play on the floor when Anthony Davis is on the bench. Uh, the team is stacked. They also signed Kyle Kuzma three years for $40 million. Not that that's, he's the X factor or the determining factor that's going to put this team over the hump because we all know this is going to be LeBron and AD show. So that's number one. I'll also make it number two. To me, number two is going to be more about the Brooklyn Nets, but I'll say the Clippers just because I brought them up. Because this is a huge year for this organization. Just like I mentioned, Kawhi could opt out after this year. If they lose a seven-game series in a conference final to the Lakers, would that be enough for Kawhi Leonard to come back? I think it would. Now, again, not knowing what's in his mind and in his heart, but knowing that they were that close to make it to an NBA final, you would think, let's get the job done the following year, whatever pieces they need to bring in, etc. Fine. But it's going to be fascinating because without Doc Rivers, who is now in Philadelphia, and Tyron Lue, the guy who won a title with LeBron in 2016, is now have to go up against LeBron throughout the course of this year to get to an NBA final. How that team performs, and forget about the regular season. Now, it's going to be important from a standpoint of where they fall. They want to be two or three. They don't want to be four, five, and below, obviously. But where they fall in the standings is going to be critical, I think. They have to be either one, two, or three. I think they'll be somewhere between two and three. If it's below that, it'll be a disappointment. And if it's four and five, they're going to face the Lakers in the second round. So that's something to keep in mind. So the Clippers are going to be fascinating with everything that happened at the end of last year, the postseason, up 3-1, losing that series, Doc leaving, the performance of not only Kawhi Leonard, but also Paul George in that final game seven. Now let's see where they go here in 2020. Now let me get to the Brooklyn Nets. To me, a huge spotlight is on them, not only with Kevin Durant, not only with Kyrie Irving, both players being healthy, a loaded Eastern Conference. I never thought I'd ever say that because the East has been so weak for so long, but this conference is loaded. But with the Nets in particular, knowing that they've waited for this moment, they've waited over a year for this player, number seven, Kevin Durant, to be on the floor, ready to go to bring this team to its first NBA title, and all... With a rookie coach and former player in Steve Nash. Now he has Mike D'Antoni as his assistant in his back pocket. But we all know D'Antoni, I get he's an assistant. He's not a head coach on this team. But it's not as if he has a great track record in the postseason either. So just because he's on that team doesn't mean that it's going to be guaranteed success. Despite all of his NBA knowledge, wisdom, and his resume as a head coach in this league. But to me... Brooklyn is that one team with Kevin Durant. If he's anything close to 100%, they're going to be tough to stop. We know about Kyrie. Those guys have to remain healthy. Even more so Kyrie because he's had all these nagging injuries over the years. The knee, 
in Boston, as we know, the shoulder last year, how is he going to hold up over the course of the 72-game season? They re-signed guys like Joe Harris. They have Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie, Jared Allen. I mean, they have a very good and deep team. So they should do some big things this year. And now, with them getting a lot of the national pub and going to play in front of a national audience quite a bit on ESPN and TNT, ABC, etc. To me, I think there's a huge bullseye on their back. And also to share that bullseye to make it to the next point. Now with the Supermax contract under his belt, two MVPs, but also two disappointing playoff exits the last two years. What is Giannis and company in Milwaukee not going to do for an encore? But what are they going to do to get themselves to the next step? And that next step being an NBA final. Now they've regressed two years ago. They made it to the conference finals and lose to Toronto. Last year, they barely got to a fifth game and lost to Miami in the conference semis. And now with Drew Holiday, part of the mix, and trying to retool their team to get themselves to an NBA final, the Bucs are going to be heavily scrutinized because we see them in the regular season as a team that just blitzes through the league. But once they get to the postseason, it's a whole different beast. It's kind of like how the Houston Rockets have been over the years where James Harden could score his 35 and he could break everybody off the dribble and a step back threes, so on and so forth. But when it comes to playing in a seven-game series, they get them bottled up, they get them frustrated, they don't know what to do, and then the Rockets exit stage right. Same with the Bucks. Once they bottle up Giannis, they know that they have to pull that wall in front of him, especially in transition. Don't get him out in a fast break in an open court. Make them play half court. And that's how you beat the Milwaukee Bucks. But now... Let's see what a little bit of a more retool team and who knows if there's going to be any reinforcements come throughout the regular season. The Bucs are another team that a lot of people are going to look at to see if they can make it to an NBA final with everything that I said about Giannis. The contract, the MVPs, the bling, but now he's missing the one piece of hardware and that's the Lawrence O'Brien trophy. And when we look overall of both conferences, as I said, the East is competitive as can be You could put Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Boston, Philly, Miami, and Toronto, and you could pull their names out of a hat, and any one of those teams could be a one seed in the conference. Now, you would think maybe Milwaukee, just based on their track record the last two years in a regular season, being the one seed coming out of the East, you could certainly argue that. Brooklyn, for everything that I mentioned, now with Kevin Durant trying to get himself back as far as not only being one of the top two or three players in the league, but also to get him and his team to carry to an NBA final and to win outside of Golden State. Boston, for their young talent, and I'll get into the Celtics a little bit later on, but with their young talent and them making it to a conference final for the third time in four years, now they need to take the next step. Philly, with all the talent and a new coach, can they also get themselves to an NBA final for the first time in 20 years? Miami, for everything they did last year, you would think they're going to try to piggyback on the success of last year and translate that to this year doesn't mean it's a guarantee but still teams are going to focus on maybe Miami to make themselves another deep postseason run and then can't forget Toronto with the coach with the pedigree I understand there's no Kawhi Leonard the one guy that they could truly count on but they do have Fred Van Vliet back in the mix also you have Kyle Lowry the aging vet to go along with Pascal Siakam and the rest of the Raptors that's around them 
So any one of those six teams could be at the top. And then you got the Atlantis. Let's see if they could take the next step. Indiana will probably be hanging around there. So the East is going to be very competitive. Where out West, it's very top-heavy. We've talked about the Lakers, the Clippers. You want to throw the Nuggets in there? Absolutely, you could do so. Maybe Utah could take that next step to be one of the top four teams. Rudy Gobert was now signed five for $205 million. If you're wondering, wait a minute, that guy's a Supermax player? Well, he's a two-time Defensive Player of the Year and a three-time All-NBA selection. So right there, that guarantees him of the Supermax. But he didn't take the full $225 million. He left some money on the table only for some flexibility with the team, which is a good job on his part. He probably could have left a little bit more money off the table because they had to pay a $195 million extension to Donovan Mitchell. But And Gobert, as we all know, defensive player, clogs the middle, etc. But he's not an offensive player, or at least one that defenses are going to have to gather around to try to stop on the offensive side of the floor. He is not that type of player. Nobody's going to confuse him with Kareem, Wilt, or even Shaq for that matter. But kudos to him. Biggest contract to a center in the history of the league. Maybe Utah can make that next step. But to me, it's those three teams up top and it's everybody else. The Suns, I know a lot of people, they're the trendy pick right now because of Chris Paul. I need to believe it when I see it. So I'm not going to look at them as a threat to those top four teams. I'm not going to look at Houston with everything that's going on down there with Harden wanting to be traded and all the rumors that are abound when it comes to their disgruntled superstar. I don't think any other team, forget about OKC, forget about any of these other teams, the Timberwolves. To me, it's going to be Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets to fight it out there out West. And we all know, to me, it's the Lakers conference to lose. And before I get to my final, as far as the Celtics go, this team still hasn't addressed the issues that ill them, and that's A, size, especially in the front court. Even though they bring in Tristan Thompson, but he's going to start the season on the injured list, who knows what kind of season he's going to have. I think he's going to help, but if his health is going to be jeopardized throughout the course of the season, it's not a good move, or it's not going to be a good signing. Granted, it's only two years, $19 million. I get that, but you got to, you need a guy that's going to play a bulk of these games here. Couple that with the Kemba Walker knee injury, and then you got to wonder, we still have two more years left on his contract on top of this year. How efficient is he going to be? And if he's going to be in and out, up and down, as we saw in the postseason, especially in the series against Miami. So this team is going to be carried, and understandably and rightfully so, by their two young stars, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But you can't expect everything to come out of those two guys Considering that we don't know about the knee and how it's going to respond with Kemal Walker and what he's going to be able to provide throughout the course of the whole season. Talking about Tristan Thompson. Daniel Tice, nice player. Can muck it up down low. But again, he's not that guy that's going to be guaranteed double-digit rebounds, blocks, etc. Night in and night out. Then on top of that, this squad, or really this roster, is mostly built of young players. Grant Williams of the world, the semi Ojales, where I understand that he's been in the rotation here for the last few years, but he's not a guy that you're going to really count on in big spots. You know, Jeff Teague is a guy that they signed who's a longtime veteran, but you're not going to expect him to go in there. Although he's the type of guy where he has that irrational confidence, he'll go in there and he's not afraid to take a shot or to go in there and get dirty. 
get those 50-50 balls, etc. But really, Jeff Teague, he's not a guy that's going to put you over the top. We know about Marcus Smart. He's the heart and soul, blood and guts in that regard. But again, he's a guy where he has those moments where he's the no, 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 yes guy when it comes to him shooting those threes. But when you least expect it from Marcus Smart, that's when he performs at a high level. And when you think he's going to pull through, that's when he falters. And to me, the Celtics need to address that size to get that rebounding because we all know they suffer from offensive rebounds and just having a presence in the middle overall. And to me, too much reliance on those guys where they can't spread it around to the likes of Kemba Walker or even last year when he was healthy, Gordon Hayward, where I thought it was good for him to move on because the Celtics didn't have to worry about his contract. But I see the Celtics, they could probably go as far as a conference final. I don't think they'll go to an NBA final. I think they'll have a good year. But I could see them winning a round, maybe two, that second round, depending on who they're going to match up against. But for a team that's made it to the conference finals three of the last four years, the next step should be the NBA Finals. And I'm not saying they can't get there, but they need to have a little bit more veteran experience and just some size in the front court. If they're able to get that before the season ends or at that time, right before the trade deadline, then maybe I'll breathe a little easier. Other than that, unless Tatum and Brown are taking their games to levels that we haven't seen, to me, it's going to be their ceilings, the conference finals. And as far as your NBA final, people are probably going to say the Lakers are going to win the whole thing. And I was thinking the Bucks, but I don't trust the Bucks. And I can't say I trust the team that I'm going to pick out of the Eastern Conference. But my NBA final is going to be the Brooklyn Nets versus the Los Angeles Lakers. And I'm going to say Brooklyn in seven. That's right. I'm picking the Brooklyn Nets in seven. I can't pick Lakers Bucks. I can't go chalk all across the board. Remember last year, my pick was Denver Milwaukee for my NBA final. And how did that turn out? At least the Nuggets were in a conference final where, geez, the Bucks were sent packing early. But come on, if I want to pick these predictions by chalk, why bother? I got to throw a little twist into it. One last thing, I'm not doing over-unders this year. I know it's just 10 games off of the 82-game schedule, but I just can't get a feel. I'm sorry. I can't get a feel for this season. Remember, it was a short preseason. I understand who's gone where, what players on which team. I, I got a grasp of that. But at the same time, and a lot of these numbers are pretty much in the same vicinity. And I'll read them to you quickly. The top spot... Or the team that has the most when it comes to the over-unders are the Bucks, believe it or not. Not even the Lakers. They have the Bucks right now at 49.5 and the Lakers at 46.5. Followed by the Celtics and Clippers at 45.5. I know the Sixers, Brooklyn Nets are also at 45.5. The Heat are 44.5. So you have a lot of those teams in that range and a win or two here and that goes right in the toilet. Nuggets at 44.5. Dallas is 42 and a half, same for the Jazz. So I didn't really have a full grasp on who's going to be an over or under for that matter. So I just thought, let me just bypass it for this year. For those who are interested or wondering about my over-under numbers, I was like, come on, Jay Rose, just going to give us something. My apologies ahead of time. But again, I, I just didn't have a good feel as to what teams to pick as far as my over-under numbers are concerned. So... I'm just going to leave it right there. Quickly to college basketball. 
You had Michigan State lose the other day to Northwestern. So even though the football team didn't win the Big Ten championship, at least they were able to upset the mighty Spartans. And then you look at Kentucky. What has happened with them? They started off their year one and three, but next thing I know, they've lost five in a row for the first time since 1926. So it's been 94 years since they've gotten off to a start like this. And we understand Kentucky, I'm not going to say they've fallen on hard times because I'm sure there are a lot of Division I teams that wish they could have Kentucky's program, but what in the hell's going on here? But that leads to this question because, and it's very early, understood, when you look at the top teams here, you can look at Gonzaga and Baylor, I, I get that, we can look at some of the teams that have played well and gotten off to good starts, but even with those two teams, Come March Madness, are you going to look at them as the overwhelming favorite? Or, oh yeah, those guys are destined for a Final Four. Absolutely not. All you got to do is just look back this past March, and that was right before the tournament was going to start, before COVID hit. And even then, there weren't teams that you could say, oh yeah, this team's going to be in the Final Four, or yeah, this team's going to make it to the championship. Yes, you have an idea based on what they've done throughout the course of the year, absolutely. But at the same time, you can't sit here and say, Oh, this team would have made it. This team would have won. This was your final four. This is a year, this upcoming year, is going to be more topsy-turvy than last year. And I think, and here's a little hot take for you. I'm going to make this early prediction. You may have a double-digit seed in the tournament make it to a final four. That's how wide open it's going to be. Unless some of these teams are going to separate themselves from the pack to the point where there is no way, shape, or form that they're not going to make it to the final four. Now, yes, you would think maybe Gonzaga, you would think maybe Baylor, you would think maybe a couple other teams. And again, I'm not in full college basketball mode, so I can't even really dive into other teams that I feel that could make it to the Final Four. And it's way too early to tell because here we are in late December and we still have two and a half months before we even get to conference championship tournaments, let alone the tournament itself. So we have a ways to go before we even get there. So, right, so even a team like Iowa, you can look at Villanova, Kansas, etc. These are the teams that are up there. Maybe not more so Iowa, but Kansas, Villanova. And we know they've had great teams going into the tournament in years past. And Kansas was the one team that I'm sure a lot of people would have bet and would have, chances all would have won last year because they were that good and maybe not separated themselves that far from the pack, but they were formidable enough to choose them, to pick them in your bracket to win a national title. This year, who knows? And until we get into January, and especially February, once the Super Bowl is come and gone, and we can really focus our attention on the college basketball, we'll have a better understanding, better idea of how good these teams are. But right now, I can name any of those teams in the top 25, and they could probably be in the Final Four. And would you ask yourself, are you surprised? And you have to say no, because you do not have a full grasp, not only just on college basketball as a whole, but on which team that you could guarantee or really feel as if this is a Final Four type team. There really isn't. All right, quickly, let me turn my attention to the NHL because they proposed a 56-game season that's going to start January the 13th. Training camp is at the end of this month where I believe the teams who didn't play in the opening round, because remember, they expanded the playoffs to 24 teams, so those eight teams that didn't play they're starting camp, I believe, December 28th. And then the other 24 teams will start the week later. 
Well, maybe I have it wrong. I think it's somewhere around the 26th to 28th, and then the 24 teams that made it to the postseason will go five days later, maybe not a week. But it's going to be after the new year, and then the season will start. So with that being said, the divisions have been laid out. So the NHL has put out four divisions, which they're trying to make it COVID-proof, and we all know in this day and age, that's uh, a risk. But I think it's smart for the NHL to do, because when you see how they have this unfolding, they're going to have the four divisions where it's the North, the West, the Central, and the East. And you can't really argue with the way that this is shaking down, because you're going to look at the West, Central, and East, which are all here in the U.S., and then the North Division are all the Canadian teams. So with the 56 games schedule, now think about it. If you're the Islanders and you're one of eight teams, the other seven teams you are going to play eight times. So there's your whole schedule right there, which can mean not only in a good way rivalries, but there may be some fisticuffs along the line. Now, of course, the game isn't the way it once was. You rarely have tough guys on any of these teams, but there could be potential for some rivalries being made, at least for this year, and maybe for some testiness, for some physical play, etc. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that. And then with the North, they're going to play each other. Now, there's only seven teams up there, so they're going to play, I believe, one or two teams ten times, and then the rest nine times. Or I may have it off. Nine and eight, I believe it is. So they're going to play one team nine times, out of the seven. So if you're Toronto, you're going to play maybe Montreal nine times and then the other teams eight times. If I do my math right, that eight times time is eight times five is 49. Or maybe they're going to play two teams nine times or 10 times. That's how it's going to be broken down with all divisions to make it COVID proof. And then, as we all know, the Canadian government are not allowing any travel between the US into Canada and vice versa. But the way the divisions are broken up, as we know, it's the Metropolitan where you had the Islanders and you also had Carolina, Columbus. Well, you're not going to have that because your Eastern Conference is going to be Buffalo, Boston, New Jersey, the Islanders, Rangers, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Washington. Your Central is Carolina, Chicago, Columbus, Dallas, Detroit, Florida, Nashville, Tampa. And then out West, it's Anaheim, Arizona, Colorado, Los Angeles, Minnesota, San Jose, St. Louis, and Vegas. Now, of course, you're going to see two problems here. The Central, how can you have Florida, Tampa, and Carolina as the Central. They should be in the East. All right, well, if that's your argument, which team in the East are you going to put in the Central? For argument's sake, you could put Pittsburgh because they're the most Western team and maybe Buffalo in the Central. But it doesn't really make sense because all those teams pretty much play as close to the Eastern Seaboard, if not on the Eastern Seaboard, as possible. But then your argument could be, what about Tampa and then Florida? Well, you're not going to have a 10 or 11 team conference you're not going to have that they have to balance it out to where out of the 31 teams you're going to have your three American divisions with eight teams in each and then your north all in Canada seven teams because that's how they have to add it up so right although maybe you can make a switch here put Pittsburgh in a central and maybe put Carolina in the east but we all know a lot of those natural rivalries Philadelphia Pittsburgh Even maybe, if you want to say, for argument's sake, Pittsburgh and Boston, if you're going back years with the playoffs, they kept it as far as integrity goes to where Florida and Tampa, they could put them in the Central. And then even out West to have St. Louis and Minnesota when they should be in the Central, but then 
Obviously, you can't put any of those central teams. You're not going to put Chicago. You're not going to put Dallas. You're not going to put Detroit in the West. So it's not perfect, people, but it's as good as what they could come up with. So they're going to have to work with that. 56 games, away we go January 13th, and there's your season. Now, quickly with Major League Baseball, the deafening silence that you hear, not only maybe a few crickets in the background, that is the offseason of the Major League Baseball. There is nothing clicking on the hot stove. You don't even have a pen light on that stove. The oven is bare. You can't even get the kitchen lights to turn on. That's how bad it is. So if you're looking for any type of rumors, if you're looking for any type of signings, trades, it is nowhere to be found. In fact, the only thing that is of note, DJ LeMahieu, the Yankees, they're $25 million off, which means the Yankees are not willing to add an extra year right now. So if that means that LeMahieu is looking, let's say, Five for 125, but he really wants six for 150. The Yankees are probably staying at five for 125 or four for 100. We don't even know what the numbers are. We just know that they're $25 million off, which equates to one season. So if the Yankees don't want to put forth another year in the back pocket of DJ LeMahieu, that's their right. But if LeMahieu finds another deal, rumors or some rumblings have been in Toronto and maybe even with the Dodgers. Now, I can't see him playing with the Blue Jays, but the Dodgers have money. From what they say, even though they had to fire people in the offseason to cut back on costs, but they could bring in a $150 million player. Eh, contradiction at its best, but nothing going on this offseason, people. And one last thing with the Major League Baseball adding the Negro League records to Major League Baseball. It's a long time coming, but nobody's going to take it seriously. Because those numbers, you can't add those numbers to currently with Major League Baseball. Because if that's the case, then Josh Gibson has over 800 home runs. I believe that's what's been recorded in Negro League history. So if that's the case, he's your home run leader in baseball history. Because you can't call it Major League Baseball history. I could see you incorporating those stats, numbers, etc. Because as we all know, Satchel Page is a Hall of Famer, all-time great, but all of his wins came in the Negro League. So if you're going to put his wins with the paltry number of wins that he got as a Major League player, you're going to combine that and then you're going to see why he's a Hall of Famer. But if you didn't include his Negro League numbers which I understand they're not included prior to him getting into the Hall of Fame because we knew he was a Hall of Fame pitcher. But to me, I think it's too little too late. I'm glad that they're put on notice. I'm glad that they're a part of now Major League Baseball from that regard. But when it comes to the numbers, they're still going to be separated. And that's in my book. Because you can't put those two together. That's like putting the Ichiro record for his hits in Japan. Now, mind you, it's in another continent altogether. But... That is pro baseball. He'd be the all-time hits leader if you combine his Major League Baseball hit total with his Japanese hit total. Can't do that. Same for the Negro Leagues. So that's neither here nor there, but I'm glad that they did acknowledge it and that they are part of Major League Baseball in that regard. But as far as the numbers go to the Dino World Baseball fan, uh uh-uh, not going to compute. All right, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week Stanford coach Tara Vanderveer, who surpasses the late great Pat Summit, the all-time winningest coach now of women's college basketball. Of course, Pat Summit, formerly of Tennessee, with 1,099 victories. Who would have thought? Pat Summit, as we all know, is the standard when it comes to coaches, not even just women, just coaches in any sport, but in this particular case, with the women's collegiate sport. So congratulations to Tara Vanderveer for eclipsing that number and being now number one of all time there. So she is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is former Major League shortstop Omar Vizquel, 
who was accused of domestic violence going back to 2011 before he was married to Bianca Fiskel. They officially got married in 2014, but then there was also reports of this now going back even into 2016. Now, Vizquel says he doesn't have anything to say about it, that they're going through a divorce, he wants his privacy, even his representative team denies that any allegations of domestic violence has occurred. But as we all know, this is a losing situation, and if the wife, or now estranged wife, soon-to-be ex-wife of Omar Vizquel is dating this back nine years, and even during the marriage, it doesn't look good for him, and he's a guy that's trying to get into the Hall of Fame, although that shouldn't factor in, but still, Omar Vizquel, you are my zero of the week. So that'll wrap it up for episode 169. There are a couple more podcasts. That's right, a couple more. Not just next Monday, but I have another one lined up for the following New Year's Eve to close out this year in grand fashion. And it's a very good guest at that. Check the website, www.jreels.com to see who that is. I'll give you a little hint. It has to do with the National Hockey League and something that's close to my heart when it comes to tough guys. So... For those who are interested, and even if you're not interested, you're going to learn a lot during this podcast that I recorded last week with this one-time player who played on one of the tough teams in the 80s. I'll just leave it at that. So definitely check out the website under upcoming shows and events. You'll get to get a peek on that there, as well as my bio. If you're not familiar with me or the podcast, you can check it out. Again, www.jreels.com. And if you haven't done so already... Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, because with your contribution of subscribing, rating, please leave a review as well. It's going to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, and in turn to generate interest for those who aren't familiar with the J Reels podcast, so whether that's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the writer, blogger, studio host, so I could have them share their experiences with me. So in turn, I could deliver that to you with what's happening in the world of sports. So please subscribe, rate, and review. I'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to send me a email, an IM, direct message, whatever, you could do so on my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. On Twitter, J Reels, one, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, or an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, just send it my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And if you want to contribute to this podcast, to the production, to everything that goes on behind the scenes, which I would sincerely appreciate, you could do so on my Patreon page, which is www.patreon. P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to contribute to that, believe me. I appreciate you taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say about sports, but if you want to contribute in that regard, again, it will be near and dear to my heart. I would thank you twice more than once for that. Because if it's your first time, 10th time, 100th time, or if you listen to all 169, you damn well know that this is what I love to talk about. This is in my DNA. Born to do this, to talk about everything that's happening on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Merry Christmas to one and all. Enjoy the holiday. Please be safe. Social distance the whole nine. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.